0: And welcome back for another week in our most recent sermon series. A sermon series you can see by way of the screens behind me is called Thou Shalt Not. Thou Shalt Not. If you're new here to our church, if this is your first time here in person or online, for the last several weeks and for the next couple more, we're engaging a sermon series whereby we are revisiting all of the Christian rules. So all of the do's and don'ts lists that you heard explicitly and implicitly if you spent any time in church. And the whole rationale behind this, the whole reason for why we're doing this, is because, again, if you spent any time in Christian culture before or church before, you know that there are a bunch of rules that exist in places like these that are God-derived. They're God-made. It's like, that's obvious. I shouldn't do that. I should forgive my enemies. I should, uh, I should uh, extend mercy and grace and uh, compassion. Like, those are all rules that I understand. But there are also a bunch of rules in youth groups and in churches that don't appear God-made, but more man-made, we concocted them out of the things that make us feel most comfortable. You've been uh, aware of those? You've been encountered those before? And so the whole goal of the sermon series is to approach this conversation on morality. What's right? What's wrong? And to not ask the question, what do human beings think about right and wrong? How do institutions like the ch- even a church define what's right and wrong? But how does Jesus... Define right and wrong, right? That's the thing that brings us all together here today. You're here to more about here. You're here to hear more about this Jesus in the life that Jesus calls us to live and abstain from. And so, uh, if you're just joining us for the very first time here today, uh, we've covered a lot of ground so far. We've talked about uh, do I have to be a good Christ, uh, Do I have to go to church to be a good Christian? Is that a rule I have to follow? Uh, second week, uh, can I still drink alcohol and still be a good Christian? Please, for the love of God, tell me yes. Um, week three, this was last week, we talked about appearance. We talked about dress. We talked about all the rules that happen in church and youth groups and Christian camps about things you can wear and things you can't wear and can you get tattoos and all that kind of stuff. So we talked about that uh, last week. And today, what we're doing is we're shifting gears yet again, and we're talking about yet another set of rules. Another set of rules that, again, if you've spent any time in or around churches, you've heard these before, rules related to romantic relationships. This is something that bubbles up in churches all the time. How does a good Christian engage in romantic relationships? And so a lot of these rules, they range. They run the gamut, right? We've put a lot of rules out into the world about who you're allowed to date, what you're allowed to do while you're dating, uh, who to marry and what roles do you fulfill in marriage and rules about divorce. These pop up all over the place. And so today what we're going to do is hopefully... Wherever you are on that, if you are single, if you are dating, if you are divorced, if you are married, my hope is that in the midst of this conversation, we're going to unearth some wisdom that Jesus has for us, what Jesus would say to us in our particular situation, in our particular engagement in those romantic relationships. But before we do that, before we do that, one of the things I want to do is sort of like set up the conversation in this way, because this is the framing we're going to use throughout the duration of my sermon today. I think whenever we talk about rules at all, at all, whenever we talk about any type of rules inside church, I think a really, really worthwhile question to ask is, why did these rules exist in the first place, right? Like, is is God just, like, super prude, or, like, are Christians supposed to be, like, the fun police just sort of running around saying, nope, you're having too much of a good time, turn that music off, turn on K-Love, like, what... What's the, like, what's the why behind it? Like, what's the core rationale behind it? And here's what I believe. Here's what I believe. That if the scriptures are true, that God is love. 1 John chapter 4. If God is love, then any rule that comes from God is meant for our protection, not our oppression catch the difference if God is love every rule that comes from God is protecting us from something now if God is not love like let's say God is just this theocratic tyrannical ruler then yeah then rules like they're not actually they can be meant for your oppression they could be meant to honestly just make your life really really miserable and not fun at all but if God is love then every single rule that comes forth from God should be protecting us, shielding us from something. And so we as Christians need to be always asking the question, what is this rule protecting me from? Maybe it's protecting me from something I don't understand yet, something I don't know. But what is this rule protecting me from? And if it's not protecting me from anything, then the question should be asked, is it actually from God? Is it actually something that Jesus really, deeply, truly cares about or not? I liken it to this. So, like, uh, those of you who've spent any time in the North Carolina mountains or if you're uh, a real mountain person uh, from Colorado, like me, um, you've seen this before. Uh, When you're driving up to the top of a mountain, uh, think of the rules that we're going to talk about as guardrails. Guardrails. They're the things uh, preventing you and your car from going off a cliff and flying into the abyss. Um, I get super, super sweaty when we drive up to the mountains uh, in Colorado. I don't enjoy it very much. But think of the rules in this way, that that's their goal, is that they're, they're shielding you, they're protecting us. On, the, on our best day, the healthiest relationship we can have with goals is they are guardrails protecting us as we are trying to reach a destination. We're trying to reach some sort of future, some sort of place that God wants us to be. And in the case of romantic relationships, our topic for today, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 paints the exact picture of the destination we're all trying to reach. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you brought them with you, if you brought smart devices and you want to read along as we're going through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, please do so. If you're watching this online and you want to have your Bibles handy, please, I would encourage you to do so. Chances are, uh, chances are, it doesn't matter who you are, uh, if you've spent any time in church at all, you've heard this passage before. You've heard this passage before. You either heard it at church, you heard it at a wedding, maybe your mother-in-law has it written in some nice papyrus font on her wall uh, somewhere when you go to visit her. This passage is very, very well known. It's very, very popular. And what's always so fascinating about this scripture is we as a culture... Have sentimentalized the mess out of this passage. We read it and we're like, oh, yes, we're here for a wedding and love is patient and love is kind. Like, it makes, it makes you just feel warm and gooey inside. But what's so fascinating is if you actually read it, <laughs> if you actually study this passage, the type of relationships it calls you to are hard. This is hard to do. For example, uh, love doesn't brag and isn't arrogant. What else am I supposed to do when I beat Marie at Mario Kart later today? Like Any well-respected person knows that's what we do. It, doesn't, it isn't irritable. It doesn't keep a record of complaints. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. so I'm just supposed to stop keeping track of all the times I've done the dishes this week, six, and how many times Marie has done the dishes this week, three. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll get right on that and start living that way. Okay. This passage runs so counter to our natural impulses and the natural ways in which we engage in dating and in uh, married relationships, and so this is why every single time I meet with premarital couples, I tell them, I say, listen, this is the goal. This is the summit. This is the peak. Ha-ha. This, is the, what you're, this is what you're trying to reach in your relationship. You're not there today. You won't be there tomorrow. You won't even be there probably five years from now. Like your goal is to keep working at this thing day in and day out until this becomes your new normal of working and relating with one another. Why? Because, friends, one of the things that's so beautiful about this passage and these types of romantic relationships is that they're not only healthy. That if you're, in a, if you're in a married or a dating relationship and you engage in that way, you're not only in a healthy relationship. You're in a holy relationship. You're starting to treat one another the way God treats you. You're starting to extend to one another the very things that Jesus extends to us. And so this is the goal this is the goal. This is what we're all aiming toward. And so going back to the whole theme of this conversation, this whole sermon series, the question for today is, what are those guardrails that we've heard so often, what are those rules that are meant to shield us, protect us as we try to reach this destination? And to be super clear about something, we are not going to tackle all of the rules. There are a bunch of different rules you've heard in regards to relationships, but today we're going to talk about three Okay? Three. You can lump most of the big rules you've heard about dating relationships into three categories. Sex, gender roles, and divorce. Okay? These are the three that we're going to unpack today. If this is your first Sunday here at the peak, welcome. Uh, We're so glad that you're here. (laughs) Please come back. (laughs) But here in these three, we're going to apply that same frame that I was talking about earlier. If God is love, then the question we have to ask is, are the rules that we've received in regards to our romantic relationships protecting us or oppressing us? And in all three of these categories, you're gonna find the presence of both. You're gonna find both. Let's start with sex. All right, so again, uh, one of the first rules uh, that you heard at one point or another, whether you were in youth group or a Christian camp or in church at some place, is you heard rules regarding sex. And specifically, you heard the commandment that went something like this that if you're a Christian, if you're a good follower of Jesus, you need to, with all of your willpower, avoid what the Bible calls sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Now, This phrase, this term is defined in a whole bunch of different ways, but for argument's sake, often times you'll run into Christians, you'll run into uh, persons who follow Jesus, what they'll say is they'll sort of opt for a really hyper-simplified definition of sexual immorality, and they'll just define it broadly. They'll say sexual immorality is any type of sexual activity that takes place outside of marriage. Okay, done, done. And we'll debate that in a moment because, for example, you might not have known this, but the term premarital sex actually shows up nowhere in the Bible. So let that be food for thought for a moment. So we'll debate that in a moment, but let's just let the argument hold for a second. Let's let this be the sort of general, we're going to use this general wide encompassing definition of sexual immorality just for the sake of argument. We're going to ask the question again, where is it protecting us and where is it oppressing us? I'll start with where it's protecting us. Okay, I'll start with it's protecting us. It's protecting us from uh, things like infidelity. It's protecting us from things like cheating things like adultery. This is a very real guardrail that human beings need. And any of you who have ever been in a relationship, or maybe you've even been like tangentially connected to someone where unfaithfulness occurred, you know why that's a rule. It's because the effects of those things are devastating. They're devastating. They have the ability to impact not only the immediate people in the relationship, but if there's children involved, it now impacts them It impacts the individual who has been cheated on. So now for the rest of their life, they wonder, am I worthy enough? Am I wanted enough? Is anyone ever going to be loyal and trustworthy to me or not? They carry that around forever. And so this rule actually makes a lot of sense to me. This is where I actually think this rule is protecting us from something. I also think this rule protects us uh, from a relationship with sex. Instead of using it as a means of intimacy, uh, we use it as sort of like a drug to escape reality. Some of us, we might fall into this sort of use of sex, that we might use sex as a way of numbing our pain, numbing our wounds, avoiding reality, avoiding a difficult conversation, avoiding a a DTR, a defining of the relationship between me and this other person sort of thing. And I'm using it just sort of as a way of kind of put it in the same bucket as like alcohol in that we said this a couple weeks ago, alcohol in and of itself isn't bad but if you use it to numb and to run away from and to flee and pretend like things in your life are not happening, then it becomes a problem. It becomes a problem. And it not only becomes a problem for you, but now it becomes a problem for the other person as well. And this is the other guardrail that I think it's protecting us from, that if you begin to use sex in that way, you're not only reaping harm upon yourself, but you're also reaping harm upon that other person that you're using to numb you're using to avoid. That person actually might be really, really interested in that relationship. They might be really, really engaged and really, really wanting you, but you're using them because let's just say it was a Friday night and you felt lonely and you didn't want to feel lonely anymore. That causes pain. That causes damage. And so sort of couched in that framework, I can actually see the real value rules, some rules on sexual immorality because it prevents us and protects us from becoming the very types of people we don't want to be. It's Jesus protecting us from living a life so sort of frivolously that we end up reaping harm, emotional, spiritual harm upon people for years and years to come. Now, That's where I think it's protective. That's where I think there's some rules and some boundaries, some guardrails I think are super, super protective. However, I also think there are places, I've had enough experience in church and Christian culture to know that some of our rules on sexual immorality are also oppressive and hurtful to people. For example, uh, recently, I think it was a couple years ago, WebMD came out with a study and they found this. They found that the vast majority of adults, by the time they reach age 20, 77%, 77% 77% of adults, by the time they reach the age 20, have had premarital sex. Now, I don't know, nor will I even fall into the trap of venturing a guess as to knowing what their motivations were, each of them every one of those persons, uh, who, uh, for that's been their story. But here's what I will share with you. That in my experience doing this job, doing this work, Almost every single couple I have ever sat with for whom this is a part of their story, this is a part of their history, not once have they said their rationale was any of those three things I just mentioned a couple moments ago. Never do they sit down with me and say, yeah, we're just, we're looking to get married, but because we want to really just, you know, find someone to use, like, you know, just trying to avoid, I guess, that's what we're after. That's what, so can you do it? Like, can you bless that kind of thing? Or is that the church down the road? Or what happens here? <laughs> not once, not once have I sat with a couple and actually listened to them and heard them say or share something like that. Almost always. They'll detail their story and they'll share things. Like, listen, <laughs> I don't know if, if this is a black and white line for God. I, I, I hear that. But like in my life, it's just not been black and white. I've been in relationships that have been really, really hard and really, really painful. Some people have shared with me that they've received verbal and emotional abuse. And some people, they, maybe it's not their direct experience, but they came from a long lineage of infidelity. And so they said, listen, the church might have its own little set of rules on that or whatever, but I had to know. I just had to know that he or she was the same person at night as they were during the daytime. I needed to know I was going to commit my life to this person I didn't know truly who they were if we were truly 100 percent compatible enough to give the rest of my life to them and I've just had enough of those conversations to change me it's changed my mind on this particular discussion I used to, when I first started following Jesus, I had a really black and white understanding of this conversation. Now I've just lived life and sat with real people long enough to know that it's just not that cut and dry. And I'll tell you what's even sadder. I'll tell you even what's more sad. In all of those conversations, I've had two recently, two recently who said they came to me and asked me to marry them. One did because when they told their pastor that they had been living together, he said he would never marry them. In the second instance was worse. They went to their pastor, and the pastor said, "Uh, I'll marry you, but you will never be married inside of our church. True story. Where's Jesus in that? I'll wait. Where's the protection in that? Where's a compassionate, merciful father who wants the best for us? in that. I'll wait. I think what we need, um, and I'll, I'll propose us uh, a working definition to get started, I think what we need uh, is a new definition, a new way of defining sexual immorality. Because again, there is some value to it. We do need some rules that help us sort of think through the ethics of sex and how they're constructive to a relationship and how they're uh, damaging and destructive to a relationship. But I think The rule that I'm operating with now, when I search the scriptures, when I search the heart of Jesus, what I find is that a good working definition of what sexual immorality should be is any act that's either demeaning or destructive to you and or your partner. I can see Jesus in that. I can find Jesus in that. I can find God's protection in that. I can find a God who's trying to introduce sex truly as a gift instead of a weapon. I can find it in that. So that's rule number one. We did that right off the bat to get started. (laughs) Now we're going to keep moving to rule number two. So rule number two. Uh, Another rule that you're going to come into contact with if you haven't already as it relates to Uh, romantic relationships uh, I said this earlier is in relation to not only sex so let's move further now that you're you're married in a committed relationship uh, when you're in uh, church we often uh, have a long we have a long rich history of prescribing certain roles to certain people certain gender roles to certain people If you spend any time in church or in Bible study or whatnot, you've been told very, very, you've been recited probably of the passage from Ephesians chapter 5 that says wives ought to submit to their husbands. And the other passages in 1 Timothy and others that say that women need to learn and quiet submissiveness. And so there's a lot of those passages that uh, in the church we have used to define What are the roles of the husband? What are the roles of the wife? What are the roles of this person? What are the roles of that person? And so the rule has been, you better make sure you faithfully fulfill your role. That's another rule that appears sometimes in these romantic relationship conversations in church. Make sure you fulfill your role as it's been prescribed to you. And one of the things that I asked last week, one of the really, really important questions that we have to ask as biblical scholars, you're like, I'm not a biblical scholar. Well, congratulations. You are one now. And any person who's following Jesus and who takes the Bible seriously has to do so while also asking questions. For example, when you come into these passages that have very, very straightforward, very, very black and white, clear-cut lines on who's the husband, who's the wife, and what are you supposed to do, what are you not supposed to do sort of thing, we need to ask the question of are these rules cultural or theological? Another way to frame it. Are these particular rules that we're confronting in first century Judaism temporal, true to the time, or are they eternal? Eternal is timeless things that last forever. They're true today just as much as they were 2000 years ago and they will be true thousands of years into the future. Here's another really good question you can ask as a biblical interpreter. Ask yourself the question, whenever you see commandments or rules in the scriptures that are telling you to live or behave in a certain way, ask yourself this question, do you, I see myself behaving this way in heaven? Do I see myself treating my wife or my husband this way in heaven? my partner this way in heaven? Do I imagine relationships functioning in a very hierarchical sort of way? And if not, then we as contemporary studiers of the Bible need to really engage it and ask the questions of which is it so that we can actually get at the heart of what God is actually asking us to do, who God's actually asking us to be. The biblical authors are absolutely receiving revelation from God. They are absolutely receiving wisdom and uh, lessons and and teaching from God. And they are also interpreting it in a very, very patriarchal sort of lens. And so in some moments, they're confronting it. In some moments, they're just reinforcing the cultural norms of the day. And I'll say this as a really brief aside. Paul is really complicated on these passages, but I can defend him just for like a quick, quick minute. He also, just so you know, uh, when you read these passages, he also would have been the only person in the first century who would have required husbands to submit as well. So before we throw it all out, Paul would have been the only person during that time saying that the husbands have to do it as well, to submit to their partner. And so... Again, let's ask this question. Let's go back to this framing. So, okay, we got these sets of rules. A lot of them seem like they're first century sort of rules on roles and first century roles as it relates to one another. Let's ask, again, this question of where are these uh, rules oppressive and where are they protective? So, where they're oppressive is what we're talking about right now. Anytime you read the scriptures and it requires you to be, a rule requires you to be unfaithful to yourself, in order to be faithful to a role, it's oppressive. If, in order to be faithful to a role, you have to be unfaithful, you have to die, a part of or your true identity, who God created you to be, has to die in order to be faithful to some first century sociological, cultural rule, it's oppressive. I've told the story a bunch of times uh, to premarital couples, and I've told it, I think, in a sermon once. But this was no clearer than uh, some really good friends of mine. So I'd, I've got some friends who were high school sweethearts uh, and then got married. <laughs> so cute. And um, we moved. So we went to college together, but then we moved. We separated. And so they, were, they went to Colorado, and they called me when I was in the middle of divinity school. They were freshly married, and they were struggling. Struggling their relationship with their church and struggling with their relationship with God because – over and over and over again, they were hearing this message from their pastor and from different folks that, nope, there's a straightforward, simple way to be married, and the man, you better be the head of the? I'll never forget, he called me, and he was in tears. He was like, we're really struggling. Uh, Our relationship is struggling. Our faith is struggling. Our relationship with the church is struggling because to live in a very, very black and white way of abiding in a relationship like that is not true to us. And I this is like, this is one of my best friends in the whole world. He was like, and listen, quite frankly, you don't want me leading a lot of the things that she leads, because she's so much better than me. Than that, that those things. Like she was, he was like, Why in the world would I be the one who's spearheading finances and budgeting conversations in our household? She's brilliant at it. Let her lead. Just think, friends, for the, not just for the personal examples, but think of the numerous examples in history of women who changed the world. They had to be faithful to themselves and who God created them to be, and unfaithful to who the, whoever the leader or teacher was in their life. They had to be faithful to themselves and who God called them to be, in order to do that. Good <laughs> Lord, think of the numerous examples in Scripture. Esther, Deborah, Rahab, every single one of them. They do not play, they don't go on to play a pivotal part in God's story if they don't at some point choose to be faithful to themselves and faithful to God over and against faithful to these rules and customs that people prescribe to them at some point. Now, before we move off of gender roles, I do want to say one more thing about this. Because I do think on the topic of roles on the topic of roles, there are some rules in Christian romantic relationships that are meant to be protective on this whole topic of roles. And here's what I mean by that. There are some passages in scripture that talk about uh, when you're in a relationship, be careful about not being unequally yoked. Now, we don't necessarily use that language uh, anymore here in 2022. But the passages there, what they're conveying is, make sure you're in a relationship with someone and make sure you're in the relationship where you are fulfilling your roles and your responsibilities. It's not enough to just exist in a relationship. You can't just show up and let all the other person do all the work, all the emotional labor, all of the pushing, all of the initiating, all of the challenging conversations. You got to pull your own weight when you're in a relationship. You got to be all in just as much as they are. A recent study found this. I think it was Harvard who published a study that found this. Check out this title. This title is amazing. It says, new study suggests 25% of married couples divorce over chores. <laughs> Some of y'all got into fights over laundry this morning. You were like, mm-hmm, say something, preacher. Say it from the guy in the back. Come on, now. Now, the title is fun. The title is fun. But this, I want to coach you to do the same thing I coach my premarital couples to do. With my premarital couples, I say, listen, uh, when you get, like, pro-status married, you learn to fight not about the thing, but the thing behind the thing. You know what I'm talking about? You're not fighting about laundry. You're fighting because you're tired of doing all the work. And the other person doesn't care. They're not engaged. Couldn't care less. They're relying on you. They're like, oh, yeah, you'll do, all the, you'll do all the kid stuff, and you'll do all the church stuff, and you'll do all the emotional stuff, and I'll just be here. That's why those 25% of people got a divorce. They couldn't be in a relationship by themselves. And so rules that protect us from that, yeah, I can see the value in that. I can see Jesus in that. I can see A life where Jesus is saying, listen, that's another form of using another person if you're not showing up and pulling your own weight. So make sure you're in it just as much as they are. The third and final rule uh, is this. So we've talked about sex. We've talked about gender roles. And I'm going to tread uh, sensitively into this last one because I know this is uh, a reality that either you yourself uh, are here today or you're listening online and uh, this has been your story, your experience, or odds are every single person in this room knows someone cares about someone uh, who has gone through a divorce. Uh, Because third and finally, there's a bunch of rules in Christian settings, in church settings, that deal with uh, divorce. And there's a lot of Christians out there who – they were confronted with a couple uh, particular passages of Scripture, and they said, you know what? I'm just going to hold to the most straightforward, black-and-white, legalistic reading of this, and so I'm just going to tell every single person I meet, no matter what the circumstances are, divorce should be avoided at all costs, doesn't matter what. And these are the passages they're basing it from. So there's a passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 9, where Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And there's another passage in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, where this is God speaking. It says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. Now, if this is your story and this is your experience, I want to encourage you, uh, if you actually go to our website and you click on sermons and you click important topics, we actually preached a whole sermon on the topic of divorce not too long ago, I think it was a couple years ago, where we dove into this conversation specifically. And one of the things that I do in that sermon is help you understand the context of these passages and the reason why they show up. Friends, one of the biggest things that we miss out on between 2022 and when those passages were written was a fundamental difference of the treatment of marriage and divorce. Nowadays, you get married because it's a romantic relationship. It's it's someone you love. It's someone you want to be with. Back then, it was a contract. It was purely economical. It was purely monetary. And that's a huge difference. Because now, understood in that way, and also understanding the, the level of power or not so much that women had during this time, it makes total sense why Jesus was against divorce so much is because men during that time were marrying women and then getting bored and then divorcing them, leaving them completely economically vulnerable, leaving them spiritually vulnerable because now they 're not going to be welcomed back in the temples and the synagogues and the places where they worship and so this is not a forbiddance of God hates divorce. It's God hates injustice. That's what that means when you read it in context. So again, if you want to do a deeper dive on this conversation, see that sermon online and underneath the born topics. But before we close, let's ask the same question. Let's ask the same question. Okay, Kyle, that's that's fine. But like, are there are there places where it is in fact Protective, to still have some rules, some Christian rules as it relates to romantic relationships on the topic of divorce. And I think there are. I think there are. I think one place where this rule uh, protects us is it protects us from engaging relationships in such a frivolous way that we're willing to quit and bail on each other the moment it gets hard. I think the guardrail is protecting us as human beings, from having such a just sort of emotional, fleeting, situational relationship with our relationships. The moment it gets hard, the moment you start running into issues that you don't know how to resolve, you just bail. I think the Christian rules are meant to protect us from that. They protected me from that. They protected my marriage from that. Early in our marriage, probably two, three years in, Marie and I were in our 20s, so we're young, dumb, and in love, and we are immature, and we are bringing in all of our wounds and all of our baggage into the relationship, all of our expectations of who you're supposed to be, but I'm going to be who I want to be, and all that kind of stuff, and we're fighting a lot, and we're working through it a lot. I'll never forget. I'll never forget. About two, three years in, I went for a walk, and I had the fleeting thought. I had a quick thought of like, maybe I should just didn't last but I had a fleeting moment of like maybe it's just maybe this is just not gonna work and now I look back upon that season of life and I thank God we didn't now don't get it twisted we are very much imperfect people with very much an imperfect marriage but when I look back on how far we've come, and I look back upon all the changes that have happened to me, both mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, I thank God that I didn't just bail because it got hard. Outside of Jesus, the person who has had the most sanctifying presence on my life has absolutely been my wife. Whether I liked it or not, Whether I was enjoying it or not. And I would have missed out on not only me becoming a healthier person today than I was back then, but a holier person than I was back then. Now, that's our story. That's our story. I also know that there are countless stories where that wasn't possible. It just wasn't. The wounds were too deep. The trust was shattered. The, the pain had gone on for too long, and reconciliation redemption was just not possible any anymore. By the way, this isn't even saying uh, about all the times we've, our rules have forced and kept people in marriages where violence, domestic violence, or abuse was present. Uh, and Christians have done this for ages. We've, we've, we've met with people who have said, they've shared this was their story, and we've said, oh, well, uh, you, God hates divorce, so you've to stay in that relationship. And then we leave that meeting satisfied. We go, yep, sweet, check the box, kept them married, boom! And what we really did was we just kept them in an oppressive relationship that was going to slowly but surely squeeze out any life any happiness and any joy that they stood the chance of reaching. Once again, I just don't see Jesus in that. In fact, Uh, in Jesus himself by the way you can do your own deep dive on this in Matthew chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 19 he does he makes his own he makes exceptions for divorce he talks about it he keeps it really broad doesn't really get very specific but he makes exceptions and you put that aside for a moment just look at Jesus' life and the way in which he engages with people and what you will find is over over and over and over and over and over and over and over again Jesus is someone who chooses people over institutions Whenever he is forced to choose, he chooses his children over rules. In fact, it was the choosing of his children over all the religious rules that got him killed. And so you want to sign up to follow Jesus, you got to do the same. I'll close here. Friends, When we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this passage that again, we've read it and heard it read so many times, it's so over sentimentalized in our brain. Love is patient, love is kind. But if you actually get into the nitty-gritty details and the content of the person and the relationships it's calling us to, what you'll find is a new rule. It's a new command as it pertains to our romantic relationships. And it's this. If you're dating... If you're still out there, you know, searching, trying to figure it out, find relationships. Find relationships where this type of dynamic in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is actually possible. It doesn't have to be possible on day one, but it has to be reachable with this person. Or, if you're already in a relationship, if you're already married, the rule is a good Christian is engaging Showing up day after day, trying to become this person. Not only for the sake of the other, but for the sake of their Jesus that they're following. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever a podcast can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.